Rappel and Jim Nebraska. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio has contributed in the past to Baseball Prospectus and Sports Illustrated. Has more recently authored Cooperstown Casebook, a book about who's in and who's not in and who should be in and who should not be in the Hall of Fame. And perhaps most notably has created the Jaws metric regarded as the industry standard for assessing Hall of Fame worthiness. It's Jay Jaffe. Jay Jaffe is the guest on this edition of the program, The Mustachioed. Jay Jaffe is who appears here. And on this edition, uh, what Jay Jaffe does is to do what Jay Jaffe does best, or at least to do what Jay Jaffe does well, because I cannot speak necessarily to his other skills. Anyway, that's to provide baseball-related content. We begin, we do not begin, but of some note, we marvel at Mike Trout's most recent accomplishment, which in this case is to have surpassed the mean Jaws figure for all Hall of Fame center fielders. In this case, at the age of 26, Mike Trout's only 26, and he's done that. He's basically in the Hall of Fame he were to meet the uh, requisite standard for years played. Uh, we also discussed the excellent early career seasons that have not necessarily led to correspondingly excellent careers. Correspondingly excellent careers. For example, did you know that Tom Brunanski recorded a five-win season in 1982 as a 21-year-old? A five-win season at 21-year-old. And uh, Austin Kearns recorded a five-win season as a 22-year-old. Fine players both, but not necessarily ultimately as elite as their uh, these early career seasons would suggest. Uh, what else do we address here? Oh, yes. Uh, we find what a jackanapes Jaffe considered a young David Cohn to be. Uh, and then uh, how he considered him to be less of a jackanapes when they both got older. Okay, that's enough. Uh, that's sufficient. We will get to that conversation with Jay Jaffe momentarily. Uh, but first, it is both my privilege and also my professional obligation to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist for reasonable sum readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that appears in those electronic pages. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, not unreasonable, but slightly less reasonable, those same readers, if they so choose, can acquire an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, as I've said before, but also liberating one from the distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership, available by going to Fangraphs.com and then clicking around. Okay. That is the bulk of the introduction. Now, let us look forward to a conversation of some note. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? The beloved Jay Jaffe. And when does it begin? Right now. provide at least a half hour of content and then you can leave okay yeah. <laughs> i can manage that i think i can manage that that low bar and uh if you know if something seems particularly compelling we can uh, we can pick it up sure um, but that's fine what do you do you you're going away yeah flying to salt lake city with my 21 month old daughter to uh visit my parents and my brother and his three and a half year old daughter who's coming to, who are coming down from seattle okay so some sort of uh not Precisely a family reunion. Is there an event? It's Memorial Day weekend, and my wife is going to her 15-year college reunion, uh, which would have involved me having to babysit my daughter one way or the other anyway. So we figured this was a a perhaps more entertaining option, and then my parents are coming back with us uh, to spend a week here in New York. So you're steering, you're steering into into this um, this responsibility you've been forced to undertake. 
I mean, yeah, basically, basically, by having a child, really. Yeah, <laughs> yes, in the larger, in the lar- in the larger sense, yes, uh, yeah, d- yeah. that's that's definitely true. Also, a little bit of one-upsmanship. My my wife is uh, just mortified at the thought of trying to fly solo with uh, uh, our daughter in her current state, and I am just crazy enough to want to show that you know it's while it may not be the easiest thing you've ever done, it can be done. So, so this is like uh, you have like a little bit of a chip on your shoulder about it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I just want to see family, and I want like mostly I just want to get my my daughter and her cousin together because they're three thousand miles apart, and they are very cute when they're together. And this will get, only be this will only any, be the third vacation they've they've gotten to uh, see each other. Will you take any pictures of their interactions? Oh yes. Do you think? Oh, you think yes. you're going to go ahead and put those on twenty three snaps or some of the? Uh, uh... I will put them on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. Uh, for my friends to see. Yeah, yeah. That's where those images go. Indeed. Let's see. Have you done anything exciting with with uh, travel-wise with your kid? You know, just a car. We do have a trip to Montreal Ooh. Uh, in August, but only for like three or four days. That's a big party town. You know, you can really lose yourself at a young age in, in, in Montreal. So yeah, uh, I, mean, I, would, I would advise you to keep your eye on him. If he wants to go out by himself, <laughs> uh, that's fine too. I don't, I mean, on the downside, his French is not particularly good. But on the upside, it's no worse than his spoken English <laughs> because he's tiny and dumb. Yeah. Yeah. All right. They're, they're pretty dumb. Do you think that you will attend any Salt Lake City Bees games when you're in um, Salt Lake? I, You know, I haven't, haven't looked at the schedule. We had uh, had a nice time at the Bees game while my parents uh, looked after my daughter back when we went uh, there in September, my wife and I, but we didn't take the kid then. Uh, well, who did, if, where did the kid go? She, uh, she, my, she was asleep by the time... Uh, uh, the game was more than an inning. Oh, old. you t- you took the kid. To the kid was in Salt Lake City. My parents yeah. were looking after her, <laughs> like responsible adults, while we went out and took Lyft to the game and, and got you know pleasantly buzzed and. Uh, oh, you know, pun had intended. A, had a few, had sorry, a few beers. sorry. Yes, Jay, wah, pun intended. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> yes, that was only the second bees game I've been to. Uh, maybe third third bees game I've been to in the new ballpark, which is now not so new, but wasn't there when I was in high school, which was the last time I, I truly lived in Salt Lake City in the late eighties. I was actually thinking of getting buzzed, right, like at a Salt Lake City Bees game. Now, this is something that you could just, this is a remark you could make to yourself or uh, with, with a loved one. <laughs> but this is not something that, that the Salt Lake City Bees could use for marketing, however, <laughs> because uh, they cannot, they probably, you know, would be advocating drinking, right? Or, or drinking to the point of being drunk, essentially. And they can't really do that. No, they can't. They're, I don't think there's any, there's, there's anybody, uh, even bars don't do that, you know. Come get hammered here. You really can't do that, right? Because yeah, the liability is too li- Exactly. But I was thinking, though, I that actually, when I just as I was about to publish your post today on Gleyber Torres and the Yankees, I noticed that I had actually misspelled the word Yankees. Uh, the Y is right next to the T, and so it had said the Tankies. I've made that typo on more than one occasion. I have left it in once in a while when they've not been doing so well. But well, so it's interesting when they not do so well. But they have never officially, not like the Astros or Cubs or Phillies, they've never really officially tanked. They've always been like I don't know what at at the sort of lowest point was like two three years ago. Yeah, that too, well, the the trade that got them Taurus is essentially you know the closest they've they've come really in the uh, in the last two decades to to tearing it down was you know when they decided to trade Chapman to the Cubs and Carlos Beltran to the Rangers and uh, Ivan Nova to the Pirates you know breaking up a squad that that wasn't really uh, 
a threat to to get a playoff spot. And the irony there was that uh, once they brought up the kids like uh, Gary Sanchez, suddenly they actually did threaten for a playoff spot. So right, so even then they were close. Yeah, even, yeah, even then they were they were close. They've never gone, you know, they've never gone full teardown in this in this era, and they haven't had to. And and that's a credit to the job that Brian Cashman has done with. Uh, uh, rebuilding the farm system, you know, that by you know, laying off of uh, the free agent market and by just doing a great job, uh, both domestically and internationally. And in terms, I know that uh, from speaking with Kyle like Daniel and Eric Longenhagen a bit, their player development machine uh, seems to have done quite a bit in the way of, yes. well, I guess developing is what they do, but there's a lot of velocity that seems to emerge from the arms in that system. Uh, that does not necessarily appear uh, among other within orga- other organizations. Yeah, I, you know, I don't have a great sense of that. I just know, you know, because I I don't really tend to pay too much attention to prospects until they reach like double A, you know, and are a threat to be recalled either this year or next year, or look like a a strong trade piece. Whereas a guy in in A ball doesn't always look like that strong a trade piece because you still have to envision him succeeding in the high minors. But the positional depth, as I talked about today. Uh, in in the Torres piece, I mean, is 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 pretty remarkable unto itself. They've just got such a, such a logjam in that infield because you know uh, suddenly Miguel Andujar developed into a playable major league caliber hitter. You know, and and Tyler Austin has come around, and and Greg Bird is uh, is is coming back, and you know these these veterans that they acquired, Brandon Drury and Neil Walker, suddenly don't have uh, clear paths to at bats anymore. And Tyler Wade, whom Brian Cashman was t- was touting in in Zobristian terms uh, just last summer, is is stuck in AAA and uh, has hasn't really been able to succeed with his uh, limited opportunities, and just they're bursting at the seams with talent there. And isn't Ronald Torres? Torres, he's hitting. He's hitting right now. But I mean, that's 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 just a you know that he is not a hitter. He is a you know a usable utility and very likable utility infielder who seems to be enjoying quite a hot streak. But uh, you know, doesn't have much power to speak of and probably isn't likely to sustain his current level of productivity. But he's a fun little player when when he when he's good. Do you think he's likable because he's a tiny little guy? Yeah, diminutiveness is next to godliness when it comes to utility (laughs) infielders. I think uh, St. John, St. John yeah, said that. Uh, you may be right. Yeah. I was actually thinking someone had proposed this idea, which was with regard to basketball. If you could see, if you could see one NBA player scrimmage in like a men, you're not scrimmage, play, like just show up and play in a men's league game, you know, with essentially like with a bunch of dads. Right. With a bunch of scrubs. Gym. Right. Who would you, I mean, yes, regular people. <laughs> who would, like, the question was who would, you know, who would you want to see? I, I mean, I, I think. Whatever the response was, a number of people said something to the effect of Russell Westbrook just because, I mean, he's quite talented. And then also just I think his attitude is kind of he's merciless. He's a bit of a killer on the court. <laughs> then other other people suggested the most normal looking, those basketball players who's like just like physically most resemble normal people, but who have outrageous basketball skill. Right. Anyway, and I think that there's something to that. But I wonder if that in part is uh, the reason why Ronald Torres might be beloved because— He's kind of an everyman. I think, right? I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I could, I could sort of see that. Sure, I could sort of see that. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's probably a more streamlined version of Enrique Wilson, if you remember that far back to the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, early, uh, yeah, two thousands heyday of the of the Yankees Red Sox rivalry. Enrique Wilson just did not look like a professional athlete. I mean, he was just, just soft, um, and you know, softer than, you know, so, soft enough to be still acceptable in baseball, but not generally thought of as 
as a uh, a premium athlete, and yet he could hit Pedro Martinez. Uh, I remember that was his. That yeah, was his that, unique that was skill, that right? was his unique skill. Exactly, he could hit Pedro Martinez, and that that probably kept him on the roster an extra couple of years. I don't have it right in front of me, but at one point I had uh, for ready access the heights and weights of every major league ball player, and uh, I was on the I was uh, speaking with Jeff Sullivan, and we were looking for body comps for Jeff Sullivan. And actually, Jeff Sullivan's closest comp is Chris Sale. Hmm. How tall is How tall is Jeff? I think he's six four, maybe. Oh, geez, yeah, I know. I mean, I've only I think I've really only met Jeff once or twice, and he's a pretty wiry dude. Yeah, I didn't realize he was six four though. Most like the average American man is usually like a a catcher. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Maybe like not like Tucker Barnhart. Do you feel like you compare you compare physically with, um, I, with Tucker Barnhart? Look, I'm five nine and and not in the best shape of my life anymore. <laughs> but, I, but I'm still I'm I'm still uh, uh, south of 185 pounds. So would you say that you've uh, you may not be in the best shape of your life, but have you have you optimized your launch angles, Jay? I yeah, I'm getting better at optimizing my launch angles. I'm in the most shape of my life. Let's put it that way. <laughs> there is a superlative to be had. <laughs> well, that's very good. Oh yeah, I was speaking with David Alpman the other day, and he had he had just mentioned like something about how you had at points. I don't know. Cover. I don't know if you specifically covered the Yankees, but you were sort of fluent in in Yankee. I did uh, a couple of years uh, at uh, the Yes Network's Pinstripe Bible with Steve Goldman. That would be, I think, mid two thousand ten through the end of the two thousand eleven season. Oh, okay. Uh, if, if I'm remembering correctly, I was doing that while while I was uh, at Prospectus, and uh, so you know, having an excuse to write about the Yankees on a more or less daily basis alongside uh, the stuff I was doing at BP, and um, you know, they're. they're the the kind of the, the the default team that I that I watch and tend to write about just because you know there's always something interesting going on because they're basically always in contention here and they've got a ne- seem, right now seemingly a never ending stream of interesting players so sometimes when I don't have any other, anything else in mind for tomorrow's piece it's like okay what are the Yankees doing tonight and is there anything interesting to write off of and that's kind of what happened last night with Glaber Torres <laughs> right now let me let me ask you this because I think I think that uh, you know most people who care about the game uh there was sort of one team obviously one in general one team with which they fall in love or not i don't know fall in love is not the precise term i mean but it's the it's the the hook i guess is the idea sure. and then there's usually like a era of that team that resonates right in particular so but was it a yankees team for you or well was- i think they're t- they're they're two actually um you know i grew up a dodgers fan and i basically got interested in baseball during the heyday of the 70s rivalry between the Yankees and the Dodgers. The the, uh, 78 season is my first one where I really, you know, understood the shape of a baseball season. I, you know, I was, I'm sure I saw a bit of the 77 World Series and had no idea what was going on. But 78 was kind of the, the year that I, you know, started collecting baseball cards and made the connection of, you know, baseball being a professional game. I was eight years old at the time, you know, and so those 77, 78, 81 World Series matchups between those two teams, you know, were, that was the big thing in my, in my childhood. And the Dodgers winning in 1981, you know, was, was a, was a huge deal for me. And, uh, you know, I continued to follow them. And uh, so who were some, who were some, well, so 81, was that 81 is kind of the last gasp of, of the, of the late seventies cores of those teams, the end of the, of the longest running infield of Garvey Lopes, Russell and say the Dodgers and kind of the uh, the the end of the Reggie Jackson 
heyday. Uh, I can't remember if that was actually his last season. It's the beginning of the Dave Winfield era, Mr. May. You know, and some of those some of those Yankees were on their last legs. And it, the Dodgers was eighty one. Was that Fernando Mania? Yeah, that was Fernando Mania. That must yeah. have been cool. I was amazing. I was I was clipping I was clipping his box scores out of the newspaper and and pasting them into or you know taping them into a notebook, which I've never been able to find. But I had. Like, what were you hoping to achieve by that? I you know I just. just I just loved the yeah. I just I, I just thought it was cool that he was stringing together all these shutouts and and you know I just liked I loved looking at box scores. I mean that was that was the hook. I used to have you know have like black elbows that, you know from like leaning on the newspaper when I would you know go to school and and you know the newsprint rubbing off. What were you, and what were you trying? Now, now listen, I'm not saying. I mean, I certainly have shared that behavior. What do you mm. think? In your opinion, what are you trying to, when you were that kid, when you were a kid looking at the box scores, like what, like, do you feel like you were looking for specific information or were you just thinking like, if I look at this long enough, like I will be able to memorize it? Well, you know, I loved, I loved the numbers. I loved, you know, batting averages. I would sort my baseball cards by career batting average or career ERA. Oh, that's, um, that's delightful. Yeah. You know, so I was interested in that stuff at an early age. I understood you know, frac. I understood batting average before I understood fractions. I mean, I could, you know, one third is three thirty three. That's one hit in every three at bats, dummy. Um, <laughs> two out of five, four hundred. That's what you got to do to be. Is that you teach your daughter? Do yeah, you, right. Do you use the word dummy a lot. Dummy. No, I don't. Me? I don't use the word dummy a lot. But uh, you know, so that was that. I was fascinated by the baseball cards, and then you know, then I got a hold of a Bill James abstract in in nineteen eighty two. You know, having read about him uh, in '81, you know, I just I loved the numbers side of things, and I loved, you know, I I don't know that I was necessarily trying to memorize anything, but I did want an appreciation. I did want to know like who was hitting home runs and who was stealing bases and who was, you know, getting the wins and things like that. And I just kind of wanted to keep up with what was going on. Let, let me ask you this, and uh, this is a uh, it's a hypothesis that is probably incorrect. <laughs> this is, this is the, <laughs> A bad theory, but I have thought for some time after reading about Pythagoras, sure, the Greek mathematician slash mystic. I mean, he was he was essentially in charge of a religious cult. So far as oh, I did not, I did not know that. Yeah, so Pythagoras was a mathematician, but he also believed that this essentially that numbers were a means to experiencing the divine. Okay, and for me, I've always sensed that that idea was charged and relevant, at least for personally, my own interest in the game. And yet, I never really, because I don't really possess this talent, I've never been able to develop the theory. <laughs> I just It just exists, and, and I say that's probably the case. But you are like an expert at developing things. Well, I don't know yeah. about an expert. I mean, I've, 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 I've had a couple hit singles here and there. <laughs> so start with that premise. Well, let's start with that premise. The, the numbers have a mystical quality. Does it seem relevant to you? I, I, mysticism is probably not the word I would use, um, you know, I, I, because I think mysticism implies that you can keep looking and you're not really going to get an answer. With the numbers, I think sometimes you do. You don't always. And sometimes you have to be very careful about, you know, knowing that you don't have the right answer. You know, you can't jump to a conclusion after 100 plate appearances or 50 plate appearances or whatever uh, and expect that it's going to withstand all scrutiny in the future. But, I, you know, I think it's a it's a... It is a striving for understanding and a striving for connection to the game because you can't, you know, I mean, look, I only played so much baseball. I actually grew up playing soccer and didn't, you know, Little League just was not that strong a pull because my friends weren't doing it. Now, it's my understanding that if you play soccer, especially in Utah in the early 80s, that you are immediately, 
registered with the the communist party is that, <laughs> is that true no no okay no no no, no. I, i'd heard that i thought yeah all right but uh i don't know i mean it, 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 there is i think there is just something about trying to understand you know trying to take the chaos of numbers and make it into order you know as a kid if you start to understand let's just say you know simple concepts like batting averages and era you know you start to understand that some players are better than others and why they're better than others and you know then you learn about uh, you know home runs and slugging percentage and maybe on base percentage and you know gets more complicated than just simple batting average but you you know you start to see more order to things and to understand the game a little bit better and i think that entry you know is much easier those connections are much easier to make with numbers than without them. Okay, so back to the Yankees. Oh no, wait, no, the Dodgers. So back, no, the Dodgers. Okay, so well, back the Dodgers. to the Dodgers. Right. So we're yeah. back to the back to the Dodgers and that and that core. That was sort of my first formative experience. The Dodgers won the World Series when I was a freshman at college in 1988, but my college years were not filled with a lot of watching baseball. I didn't see anything after the earthquake in the 89 series. I probably watched no games except for the summertime. Uh, before that, I saw nothing of the 1990 World Series, and I did see most of the 91 World Series, which was remarkable. But it wasn't until I moved back, until I moved to New York City in 1995, that I had access to a major league ballpark on a regular basis. And 90, 95, 96, I went to a couple games and kind of, you know, the, the 96 Yankees. And it was actually, I think I may have written about this somewhere, but the David Cohn post aneurysm comeback, uh, which was, oh, the right, it was the, the remove with a no hitter. Uh, something, you know, a topic that I addressed a few weeks ago. Uh, it was him coming back, throwing seven no hit innings and being pulled, you know, to, to await a, another day when he was stronger. Uh, that kind of got me the hook with the Yankees there. I was like, oh, God. That was actually pretty impressive that they didn't just push him so hard. I hated David Cohn, you know, based on what a punk he was with the Mets, giving them the, the Dodgers bulletin board material in the 1988 NLCS. Thought he was just a little punk. But uh, wait, what did he? Do you recall what he said? It, he, he was ghostwriting a column, or somebody was ghostwriting a column for him. And it basically, just you know, it was uh, the. I think the Mets had beaten the Dodgers 11 out of 12 or 12 out of 13 in the regular season, and. I think it was just the kind of the kind of thing that Tommy Lasorda was just an, such an expert at taking offense at something somebody else said and using that as motivational material for the Dodgers. That was one of Lasorda's big skills, and he managed to do it with that. And and uh, I think Cohn got who pitched well in one one game in that series got knocked out early in another. And I don't know. I just he wasn't uh, he wasn't terribly impressive at that point. But you know, by, but I'd sort of come around on him by by '96, and, and you know, I'd seen the '95 playoffs. I'd rooted against him in the '95 playoffs, the uh, the Mariners. Uh, epic series and you know cone being left out there to to dangle past 140 pitches i think it was but uh you know 96 i, I kind of caught on and that was a, that was a pretty engaging team bernie williams young Derek jeter and then uh, you know we started going to more games and in, in 1998 before the 98 season uh my friends and i bought into a partial ticket package a partial season ticket package i think it was uh 25 games and we got you know five people together including my brother who had just moved to the city and uh we went to a bunch of games, and uh, of course, the '98 Yankees were, you know, the, the the juggernaut of the era. And so that '96 to 2003 run really was was kind of a prime time for my Yankees fandom. You know, just having access to those to those games, to, you know, to be able to go to World Series games. Uh, went in '98, '99. I didn't go in 2000. I, 
uh, but I got one in 2001, oh, 99 clincher even, 2001 and then 2003. And uh, that was a lot of cool stuff that I got to see there. And then, you know, after that, uh, you know, it wasn't quite the same. And, you know, gradually I've gotten more professionalized and, and cultivated a distance. You know, I don't feel like, you know, quite like a fan uh, at those games anymore. I don't feel always quite like a journalist because I also am a paying customer, but uh, it's, a, it's a very weird precipice or perch from which to, to observe uh, you know, both the game, the game and uh, the fans. With regard to Dave Cohen, was he ever close to, was he ever close to, to Hall of Fame consideration? I think Dave, David Cohen had, had Hall of Fame talent. I think that there are a lot of pitchers who aren't as good as David Cohen who are in the Hall of Fame. I think you can sort of make a case for him. I think that he's among about a half dozen pitchers from his era, who are kind of a lost generation that I think under different circumstances would be in the Hall of Fame, uh, at least some of them, Cohn, Hershiser, Gooden, Dave Steeb, uh, there's one or two others in there, you know, the the elites of that particular era that just did not get too close or too, too far past 200 wins and just didn't quite have the staying power to really rack up strong hall consideration. Oh, Saberhagen's another one. Oh, yeah. Actually, Conan Saberhagen, well, no, because they both played, didn't they both play for the Royals and the Mets at various points? Yes, they did. Yeah, Yes, okay. they did. I'm not sure, I'm not sure how, for how long they were teammates at either spot or if they were teammates at either spot. I, I, I can't remember because I was, I was much less focused on those two teams, but uh, I don't think they were ever teammates. And they also, uh, they also both spent some of their last days with the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, yeah. Actually, they were teammates on the Red Sox in 2001. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That game that Cone threw opposite Mussina's near perfect game was pretty remarkable. You know, because Cone had just been so awful with the Yankees in 2000. You know, he managed to salvage you know and and further his career in in 2001. And actually, shortly after that, one of a, one of my friends in my ticket group uh, was a huge Orioles fan. And we got tickets for an Orioles game in September 2001. And that game, because of September 11th and the uh, the cancellation of a week of games or the postponement of a week of games, that game ended up being Cal Ripken's final game, uh, final game ever. And not only was it Cal Ripken's final game, but for that game, David Cohn started for the Red Sox and Tim Raines had just been traded to the Orioles so that he could play with his son. And for a while, there was a there was a legitimate possibility that th- that all three of those guys, three of my favorite players, were going to have played their final game in the same contest that I was lucky enough to be at. But then Cone decided to come back with the Mets in two thousand three. Reigns went to the uh, Marlins in two thousand two, so it didn't quite turn out that way. So, would you encourage those players? Not to have played those extra games so that you could have this experience. <laughs> uh, I don't begrudge any of them for sticking around and hanging on. It just would have been neat. Would you stick around, or would I have, you... you would have to peel the uniform off of me? Unless, I, <laughs> unless I, unless I had a hundred billion dollars, and you would have to peel the uniform off of me. You would have to physically restrain me from from taking the field. I think that's uh... you'd be willing. So you'd be uh... well. Maybe you know those of us who have not necessarily benefited from elite athleticism huh. or lead anything I, I mean i can speak from my point of view <laughs> is you become you become accustomed to losing and you, and you really learn how to, d- to deal with it or to embarrassing to embarrassing yourself <laughs> whereas elite athletes they tend uh they tend not to have to endure that i guess which is maybe what makes it more awkward yeah i think well i think there's well i don't know i think at this at a certain level you know surviving in baseball is being conditioned to withstand a great degree of failure you know you don't get you 
you, you make it out more than half the time. Yeah. You know, you have to, you, you might go a week without a hit, even though your process is just fine, you know, and you have to have some sort of faith in, you know, in that process and, and to be able to, you know, erase in your mind what happened the last at bat so that it doesn't affect your next at bat unless it's, you know, something about picking up cues from the pitcher and knowing, you know, how he might approach you. There's just, there's a lot of failure to deal with. And I think, you know, I think that uh, it's reminded of, uh, you know, what Michael Lewis wrote about Lenny Dykstra in, in Moneyball because Lenny Dykstra himself brought it up on Twitter just a few days before he was arrested <laughs> for uh, yet another yet, an, yet another legal mess that he's gotten himself into. But, uh, you know, the ability to just put failure behind you and, and uh, you know, almost, you know, like forget to think. Am I correct in seeing recently that does Lenny Dykstra have no teeth? I don't think he's working with with a full set, <laughs> like, a, like a, just as is the case with his brain cells. I don't think Lenny Dykstra is working with a full set of teeth yeah, anymore. I, I saw him on some manner of a talk show, or it was like a clip, maybe from like Colin Cowherd's radio uh, program, quite it was possibly like a, a video component of it. And uh, not only did he, I believe he was, yes, as you say, he was working with less than a full complement <laughs> of chompers. He also didn't appear to be embarrassed by it at all, which I suppose is another kind of skill. Yeah, I, I think that uh, yes, I think that that's probably that that's Lenny Dykstra in a nutshell. He's there's not a lot of shame there. No, yeah, well, good for him, I guess, uh, on that one front. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see, a failure. Uh, we got Saberhagen, Cone, Blackwood, Fodder. Oh yeah, Trout. Well, I'm returning to. There's no segue here. I'm returning to a post that he wrote earlier sure. this week, which I guess I suppose it's rare. Like uh, this happens to. To any of the writers who are part of the uh, Fangraph stable of authors, right? Is there are certain things that uh, fall within your wheelhouse? Sure. Right. Yeah. And uh, for you, certainly, conversations about the Hall of Fame and the worthiness of it uh, is the case. But I, I have to think that you probably have not had many opportunities to write about the Hall of Fame worthiness of players who have not reached yet that age that is typically regarded as a major league peak. Yeah, no, I think that that's that, that that's definitely true. I mean, I I feel like you know we're catching the the real the real time progress of Mike Trout towards the Hall of Fame. You know, more or less from the crib, <laughs> you know, to to Cooperstown. It's just it's just in such in such terms, you know, just starting with that remarkable rookie season, and you know, just knowing you know another topic that I've written about, just how reaching the majors at a, at such a young age, and this applies to Bryce Harper too confers such an advantage you know from a historical standpoint as to as to the frequency with which those guys make the hall of fame yeah you know there's there's just not that many players who have who have done as much as trout has done to solidify a spot so quickly i you know the most i could find were or the youngest i could find were a rod and johnny bench and uh Obviously, you know, war and Jaws hadn't been invented when Johnny Bench was doing what he was doing, you know, in the, in the 70s. And Alex Rodriguez uh, was uh, basically at the same point that Trout was. Uh, Trout is, I think, around, this is 2002, his age 26 season, and Jaws had not been invented yet. So I wasn't really monitoring it on those terms either. But, you know, I think that, uh, so by that token, you know, having an existing metric that tracks one's progress towards the Hall of Fame. Yeah, Mike Trout is a first in that regard. I've probably talked, you know, I've talked about Clayton Kershaw, uh, you know, probably from the point that he won his, his third Cy Young, you know, in those terms, and he had yet to reach the 10-year requirement. But, uh, you know, he's not, uh, he's still not over the, you know, the statistical humps that, that I think make a, make a strong case for election in the same way that the three Cy Youngs do. So, yeah, Trout in that regard, I think, is first. 
Wait, so, okay, so I think it recently in a post you discussed the, the correlation between uh, maybe debut age. Yes, yes, and... that's the one I was talking about. Yeah, with Acuna and... Uh, right, uh, yes. And yeah. I don't know if it was obvious, but but a similar thing has just become relevant by Juan Soto's... Right. I um, actually talked debut. about that today in my chat. Juan Soto uh, has, just by having a single plate appearance as a 19-year-old, from, in historical terms, 10.5% of those players have gone on to the Hall of Fame, not including the active ones, which included Harper and Trout. Gleyber Torres, 21 years old, getting to 100 plate appearances, uh, historically that's a 14% chance of the Hall of Fame. At 21? At 21. Oh, really? Yeah. 100 appearances at 21? Yep. That's strong. That's strong. So is there like a, I mean, obviously you mentioned one plate appearance at age 19. Uh, what if it uh, creeps up closer? I mean, what if you get 100 at 19? I don't, I'm not asking you to run all I, these. I have the, um, I had the numbers in that, in that same piece here. Let's see if I can get to it. Yeah. yeah hey, I know, I know what we can do. Uh, we can play the Fangraphs hold music. Oh, no, I got it here. Okay, so 100 for Hey, 19... Jay, I'm going to play the goddamn <laughs> Fangraphs hold music. <laughs> okay. Okay, we're back. That was Fangraphs Hold Music. So, Jay, you were trying to make a point. Okay, so yeah. here I have the ta- I have the tables in front of me here. Where Jay is about to recite some some statistical tables to you. At age eighteen, this is for a hundred plate appearances in an age eighteen season. Historically, a twenty seven percent chance at the Hall of Fame. Three out of the eleven qualifiers who are eligible have made the Hall of Fame. For the age 19 guys, there are 59 of them, and 24% have made the Hall of Fame. Hey, sorry, what threshold is it again? 100 plate appearances. 100 plate, wait, so who, do you do you have a list of the players? Uh, the eight Jamokes? Let's see here. I have, I have the list of the 20-year-olds at hand. Okay. The 19-year-olds, I'd have to go rebuild the list here, but, uh, you know, it's guys like Adrian Beltre and Mel Ott and uh, who else here? The Uptons. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm just trying to imagine the, the players who did make it. Players who were the best at a young age. Yeah. Who, uh, just from your person, from your memory, or maybe you have it, some examples just from the li- this list. Players who were very good at a young age and whom you anticipated going on to something great, and then they didn't. And I guess hmm. I, I mean besides injury, I guess. Yeah. Um. I mean, boy, it's fun. It. I, I'd have Can to I give think. you one example? Sure. Austin Kearns. Austin Kearns. Yeah. Austin Kearns had a had a very good. He had a five win rookie season mm-hmm. as a twenty two year old in just uh, a little over four hundred plate appearances, which to me would seem to be a harbinger of great things to come. But that essentially amounted to roughly a third of the wins he produced in his entire right. career. Right. The limitations were were quickly. Uh, he quickly reached his ceiling there. You know, I think that seems to apply more with pitchers. I think I think about it, but uh, let, me, let me. Well, Jason Hayward's a good example. I mean, I he has not gone on to the greatness that we expected of him after his uh, was. Uh, I think about a six-win rookie season. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that that one comes to mind. How old was Bobby Higginson when Bobby Higginson had a good season? Oh boy, that's a good question. At one point, he was like the uh, he was the foundation of the team. He's not as relevant. 
I take it yeah, back. That, that guy got that guy got old got old quickly, and yeah. <laughs> well, I, he didn't I, really. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't really have his first good season until twenty five, and then after yeah. thirty, he was kind of done. He actually had a decent stretch, but I always thought I always thought Eric Harris would turn out to be better than he did, and he still seemed to be kind of. He was okay, but you know, I mean, he just. A, we probably didn't entirely appreciate him given the the low ebb of offense in Dodger Stadium, you know, at the time. But uh, you know, he was also a guy who didn't have uh, really, you know, a tremendous breadth of skills. He didn't walk a lot. You know, he was a th- he was maybe a, a three to four win player at best. As a but he had like you know thirty home runs and a hundred RBIs, but just you know just not a great deal of value because his on base percentages weren't all that high. Right, he wasn't significantly outproducing the league average first baseman. You know, during during what was a high scoring era. Um, yeah, but he always he always seemed to have like a right. The, there was always sort of hope tied to him. I often felt that way because one of the first players to whom I was introduced who was regarded as having some sort of upside was Todd Benzinger. Do you remember oh, Todd? Oh, yeah, vaguely. Do you remember yeah. Todd Benzinger? Todd Benzinger occupies like a much larger space in my head than many other much superior players. Like you mentioned, sure. you mentioned Dave Winfield. Like, right. I know a lot more. I don't know if I know more about Todd Benzinger. I feel like I'm much more well acquainted with him. Right. Because there was always a great deal of praise for his swing. Mm-hmm. And I guess I... Uh, I always thought, well, he's about to turn a corner, but then, but then he was like in his thirties. <laughs> right. That's not you know, that I thought Chuck Knobloch was on his way to the Hall of Fame. You know, when he when he first came over to the Yankees and and was just such a you know such a uh, uh, a dynamo atop the lineup, really before the throwing problems uh, reared their heads. Um, well, he was know. also dominant. I mean, he was dominant on the Twins, right? Yeah, he was. I mean, yeah. he had some he had he had some great years there, and then when he came over, it's like, oh man, this guy's going to get you know this guy's a three thousand hit candidate. Um, you know, because he's cranking out 180 a year like clockwork, and and uh, uh, you know, playing for a championship team, and uh, but he got old in a hurry. He had uh, you know the the throwing problems, wrist problems, PED issues, some off field stuff, and boy, that ended quickly. Raúl Mondesi, you know, oh, had yeah. just the physical tools that he had. That arm, I mean, even when he was like fat and old and playing for the Yankees, just watching somebody ring a double off the right field wall. And he would just like grab the ball and just cock his arm and say, you know, I wish a mother would, you know, try to try to take second base on me. And just like, just the, the glare and the cocked arm were enough to just like make it, Oh man, oh, good. please throw it, throw it, throw it. Let's see what he does. Hey, you're a little bit older than me. So maybe you could tell me about this is, a, uh, no, listen, I, I'm getting to a space now where I, prepared to embarrass myself for uh for uh, some holes in my in my sure. historical knowledge what do you know about caesar Cedeno? oh man i you know he was underappreciated in during his time and his heyday was i think a little bit before i really started becoming conscious of, of what was going on but i know bill james was big about him um and he was a guy who Really, you know, was starring at a young age. Uh, let's see, hit three ten as a nineteen year old Astro. You know, struggled struggled as a twenty year old, but uh, started putting together all star seasons at twenty one from twenty one through twenty five. You know, it looked like a, looked like a, a uh, he was one of those guys who you would say you know was on his way to the Hall of Fame given his production at an early age, even in the Godforsaken Astrodome. Then there was there was an incident. I think he shot somebody uh, in winter mm. ball, like an accidental homicide, uh, or you know, I think it was a manslaughter. Um, I, I, not, I don't. 
you usually that, don't want that. It's not what you want to yeah. uh, you know, to borrow <laughs> the, the Joe Girardi phrase that gets a lot of mileage in our household. And, you know, and then there were some injuries, and and I can't remember if there was a drug issue in there or not. I I could be conflating him with somebody else there. Uh, the '80s were were not a happy time for you know a lot of ball players in terms of their connections to to the white marching powder. But you know, he was a guy who stuck around for you know only till about age 35, and even then he you know he he'd gotten. 17 years in the big leagues because he he got such an early start. But, you know, really after about uh, age 26 or so, he only had a few really good seasons, a couple of really, his last really good season was, was 1980 when he was 29. All right. I'm going to ask you about another player. And again, I think this is probably on the fringes of your early days as a fan. So it may not make sense to you. Um, but this player at age 20 recorded a nearly four win season, bat- batting line 20% better than league average. Claudel Washington. You know, I mostly just remember him as a guy who just played for everybody. You know, well traveled. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was he was a guy who just who just bounced around everywhere. It's like, "Oh, he, you know, he he came up at the tail end of the A's dynasty." You know, and I'm looking at see Rangers, White Sox, Mets, Braves. I mostly remember him with the Braves in the in the early 80s. I mean, he was part of that that team that won the uh, NL West under Joe Torre in 1982. And by that point, you know, he was an okay player. Never, I mean, just like, you know, 15 homer a year power. Nothing amazing about his batting averages. But, uh, you know, I guess he was he was okay. Looking at the, the, the war, I mean, he compiled about, I'm looking at his baseball reference page here because I was on the play index. But uh, 19.6 war in 17 seasons. That's stringing him along. But the first one was pretty good. <laughs> Here's another. This is I actually should have probably brought this up first. Here, allow me to allow me to inform you of the search criteria that I've used. Okay. Okay. Since 1970, ages 21 and younger seasons. Okay. You could probably guess the names towards the top of this. Uh, the first two of them belong to Mike Trout. They're not necessarily rookie seasons. Just age 21 and earlier. Mike Trout, Alex Rodriguez, Ricky Henderson, Cesar Cedeno, 2001 Albert Pujols. 1998, Andrew Jones. These are not surprising you so far, I assume. Right, no. Uh, 91, Ken Griffey Jr. Okay. That's eight. And number 10 is 2016, Carlos Correa, which I assume is also not particularly surprising. And then the names after that even uh, are not that. Manny Machado, Upton, Jason Hayward we mentioned. Number nine on the list is Tom Brunanski. 1992 Ah, version of Tom Brunanski. Wow. Okay, I remember, I saw Brunanski play at Salt Lake City. Um, he was, uh, he Which was, is, a, wait, when, when that would have been 80, 81. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he, he was, had, he, he was, was an angel system. Yep. He was angel system and the angels traded everybody away. I mean, they traded every prospect they had just absolutely just, you know, because he was a former first round pick and he was traded Doug Corbett, Rob Wilfong. Boy, there's a, there's a great deal for you. <laughs> yeah. The, the angels in that day with uh, Buzzy Bavasi as the general manager, just, you know, like they just traded so many good young players away for, for veterans. And uh, so a lot of the guys I saw in Salt Lake were guys who made much bigger impacts with other organizations. The one, one who was one of my favorite players um, and was a surprisingly handy player was Brian Harper, who came up as a catcher. <laughs> and uh, who, who had a, who had a nice long major league career, and uh, I think was on the was on uh, one of those Twins uh, championship teams. Uh, he was he was good. Rance Mullinix, Dickie Thon, Willie Akins, uh, who starred in the nineteen eighty World Series, had a couple of two homer games, uh, and then later did uh, some hard time for cocaine. Who else? Uh, While you're looking at that, I'll also invite you to consider a link that I'm sending you via, via the application we use for recording. Okay. This is, I'm not sure that there's no reason why you would have had to, to look at any of these, but Dane Perry, with whom you're familiar. Sure. 
A criminal. <laughs> Many people. Hey, Brian Harper, yeah. yeah oh, that's a great this. baseball card. <laughs> yeah. So this is... Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is actually just one in a very... In a, in a lengthy series, which I will... I'll send you the link of all the banknotes Harper's post. But, um, uh, banknotes Harper. What, uh, what Dane did was to construct a sort of like... Um, an er capitalist figure, <laughs> right? A father, a captain of industry, out of <laughs> uh, out of Brian Harper, who uh, pictured here in Upper Deck from I don't know, probably what ninety one or something, right? Brian Harper is taking is taking a phone call with with a an very oversight. clunky portable phone, <laughs> yeah. And uh, but Dane, of course, is mostly defined by his weaknesses. Does have one strength, which is to um, which is to imagine. Uh, someone behaving sort of immeasurably poorly, right? And uh, <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, so he crafted this character, Banknotes Harper, who you know mostly goes around um, murdering men and impregnating women. Ah, uh, well, that's, is, uh, that's 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 most of us, really. It's the it's the Genghis Khan <laughs> model of model of uh, personal conduct. It's a it, it's a good it's a good model, really. I mean, you know, it, it's it, there's it's sustainable. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. You, you, well, yeah. I would say it's probably worked better in other, maybe more so in a bygone era than other than, times. Than, yeah, than today. yeah. Although, I mean, we can be nostalgic for it, sure, <laughs> sure. But um, yeah, the old uh, murdering men and then in, in uh, impregnating women is uh, right. You're right. It is. It's become passe. It has, it's yeah. become passe. I think it, it it does actually reveal like a certain. There is a some sort of. Rational thought, I think, has gone into it, <laughs> which is this is how I'm going to I'm going to take over, right? Well, it is kind of a you know, it's from a Darwinian standpoint, it's a survival of the fittest thing, you know. Right? You're, it does, you're, yeah, it show, it you're, does you're, you're eliminating the the you're eliminating your competitors for the available females with which to yeah. reproduce. See that biology degree is coming in handy even now. <laughs> it generally, Thirty it generally years just... after I graduated, twenty twenty five <laughs> years after I graduated, twenty six. <laughs> oh man, and. And your wife is only going to her fifteenth. Yes, there is an age mm. difference. You are you are an old man, JJ. I, I am an old man, and I feel it every day when I get out of bed. Yeah, no, but if you are murdering men and then um, impregnating women, what I was going to say about that <laughs> is uh, just to really, really good dwell segue, on it. Good segue there. Really dwell on it for a moment. Is um, if you subscribe to the notion, right, that generally speaking, one's liberty should be respected unless they infringe on another's liberties, right? Right. Then you probably will not accept that behavior from someone because it Indeed. really is. Everyone's lives are affected by that particular sure. model. Sure. Yeah. I yeah. agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it probably, I think it, I'm not actually. Condo- I'm not actually condoning it. You're not. Okay. All right. I was just so that you don't want to make that like your Twitter bio or anything. No, like I'm that. not about to make it my Twitter bio. Okay. All right. Well, that seems fair. So Mike Trout's good. I think we established that. I think we established right? that, and uh, yeah, yeah to, to everybody's satisfaction. How often do you watch Mike Trout? Um, you know, more so with with Otani on the team. I, I feel like the Angels are probably, if I were to draw up a hierarchy of you know which teams I check in on on a given night, you know, the Angels are probably in the top five or six right now. You know, particularly if Ota- if Otani is playing. Certainly, I was checking in on the on them when Albert Pujols was making his his uh, run at three thousand hits because I was writing about that. The Astros Angels series have become particularly entertaining. So if those two teams are playing, there's a chance we're going to stop by. Emma 
my wife watches them a lot too. You know, a lot of times I'm working back in my office here and I've got the Yankees game or the Dodgers game on and she's out there in the living room doing her work and she might have a different game on. And, uh, you know, when, after I put away the keyboard for the night here, I, uh, you know, we might watch, uh, whatever she's, whatever game she's got on. And, uh, often she gravitates towards the angels too. So I do see a fair bit of trout and yeah, you know, we've, we've puzzled over the, uh, decline of Cole Calhoun as well, which seems to be like the inverse of Mike Trout these days in terms of, uh, production falling through the floor. As yeah, I, have, I haven't followed the Calhoun saga too much, although now that uh, I'm prompted to look at it, does it, it seems like he's not doing quite a lot on contact, is he? Or he's not. I mean, making less of it. It's yeah. tough to have a five WRC plus. Yeah. Let's just say that 150 plate, 157 plate appearances and his WRC plus is five. Yeah. He's hitting, he is slashing 154, 191, 195. That's hard to do. Right, which and, and he's been a pretty good player. He's got three pretty solid, four pretty solid seasons under his belt, and suddenly, you know, he has, seems to have forgotten how to play baseball. I wonder if he is in the midst of a season-long stroke or something like that. This is just absolutely yeah. gruesome to watch. I mean, I really find that from you know, it's it's like it's like watching David Cohn's 2000 season as a pitcher. All of a sudden, he has forgotten how to play baseball. And, uh, Wait, what happened in 2000? He's bad. David, I assume. Co- David Cohn. Yeah. Oh my God! Uh, he I think he posted I think it was like six ninety one ERA and four and fourteen record and he had a, he had a, th- a good three start run and that like somewhere in August that gave people hope but other than that it was it was grim that was the season that Roger Angel was following him around to write a book oh whoops one of uh, Roger Angel's rare forays into single subject work at least within baseball like uh, long form and uh, it was basically turned into a look at a pitcher who is just struggling to find what the hell is going on and uh, you know it, he just fell apart and that's what sort of what seems to be happening with with Calhoun although at a much younger age and with much less explanation I mean this is he's 30 years old but uh, he's you know, built like a fire hydrant but that's still whew. <laughs> these numbers are dire um, and they do seem ripe for, for more explanation, uh, you know, given our advanced statistical methods. So uh, somebody was asking me about, about uh, Ian Kinsler today in my chat. And I think may have asked, somebody else asked about him last week and he seems to be down the tubes and you look at the angels and there's just not a great supporting cast around Trout and Otani there, you know, with, with, a, with only a few exceptions. Simmons, obviously sometimes just yeah, enough to, but sometimes not. Because they seem to be, they seemed as though they would have been pretty reliable options. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I look. I'm among those who who thought that the Ian Kinsler edition was going to be fine. That last year was just a you know a blip on the radar, and that look, even if he's you know an average you know just a league average player, he's going to be a huge improvement on what they um, on what they've had at second base recently. He has not, in fact, he's been replacement level, and uh, uh, Calhoun has been worse than replacement level, and uh, you know there are big holes in the in the Angels lineup once again. Hey, a uh, a glance at the clock reveals that uh, Jay Jaffe has fulfilled his obligation to the program. All right. Well, um, we can finish this topic uh, or we can uh, hang it up. I'm, I'm fine either way. Well, what's the topic? I, Trout's we're good? Just, yeah, I, mean, I, guess, I guess we've pretty much established that. You're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it, I think that that's fine. All right. um, the, the commission, also, the commission has filed its as has filed its report. <laughs> MLB Commission fan, Fangraph Summit confirms Trout's still good. Yeah, well, someone had to someone had to look into it. Yeah, I'm glad we were important. able to. But a real pleasure to speak with you. Now, what's your what's your vacation schedule? Just so I know what to and what not to. 
I am flying out tomorrow morning, uh, mm. which which means that tonight is it's going to be touch and go to see whether I get anything done. Okay. Uh, because because I have to pack as well as uh, everything else I've got going on, and I'm flying back on Tuesday, uh, getting in at like three thirty uh, with my parents. So it may be Wednesday before you hear from me uh, in oh, any boy. substantial form again. And, well, uh, I guess I'll have to allow it. Yeah, well, yeah. you know. Also got some plans for June that I that I need to, uh, I, I will uh, detail you in another, in another uh, format here. Yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to inform the public right now? Yeah, I don't need to inform the public right now. Okay, but, uh, all right, that's fair enough. Well, uh, before you do that, let's do this. Let me say thank you, Jay Jaffe. Sure. That has been Jay Jaffe. That's been my pleasure, too. Always good yeah. to talk baseball. Oh, good. That has been Jay Jaffe. Uh, I'm Carson Stooley. And this has been Fangraphs Audio.